Hello, and welcome to Occupied Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by the Foundation for Middle East Peace. I am Yara Asi, non-resident Palestine fellow at the Foundation for Middle East Peace. Today is Tuesday, February 20th, 2024, and I am really delighted and honored to be here with Professor Alex Deval. Alex, thank you so much for joining me today. It's a pleasure. I only wish we had a more agreeable topic to talk about. Yes, absolutely. I, I always say when I'm speaking about something, it's probably never good news. Um, Alex Deval is the executive director of the World Peace Foundation and research professor at Tufts University's Fletcher School. Considered one of the foremost experts on Sudan and the Horn of Africa, his scholarly work and practice has also probed humanitarian crisis and response, human rights, HIV AIDS, governance in Africa, and conflict and peace building. His latest book uh, from 2017 with Polity Press is Mass Starvation, the History and Future of Famine. And most recently, he has been speaking and writing very widely about famine and starvation in Gaza, including a recent article in The Guardian entitled, Unless Israel Changes Course, It Could Be Legally Culpable for Mass Starvation. And uh, Alex, with all that we've been seeing and hearing, in fact, there was just another report by the World Food Organization just yesterday. Uh, I think this is so it's a perfect time, an opportunity to speak with you. And I want to thank you again for being here. You're very welcome. I want to start, um, you know, we're, this podcast is, is sent to a general audience. And so I want to be sure that we're precise about the terms that we're using. So can you first help frame this conversation by telling us what mass starvation means? Um, what are the indicators? And does this differ from famine? So there are no really good, solid, agreed definitions of either mass starvation or indeed of famine itself. I think a, a good starting point for this, though, is if we go back to World War II. Because during World War II, as many people around the world perished from hunger as they did from the direct effects of violence. And in fact, hunger, starvation was the principal mechanism for uh, genocidal extermination. Um, and if, if you are to read Primo Levi's book about survival in Auschwitz, you will see that his book is suffused with the experience of hunger and the way in which um, hunger in the concentration camps actually dominated the day-to-day -day experience of those inmates, those survivors. And as many people actually in Auschwitz, Auschwitz perished of starvation, as, as did in, in, in the gas chambers. And if you read Raphael Lemkin's book, Axis Rule in Occupied Europe, um, in which he coined the term genocide, you will find that in that book, he spends more time, more pages on starvation as an instrument of genocide than uh, killing squads and, and gas chambers. And from this, I think, the first lesson to be learned 
is that the verb to to starve is transitive. Starvation is something that people do to one another. It's not something that simply happens. It's not a, an, an, an act of nature. Um, and yet, after World War II, if, if, if I were to ask, you know, what are the signal atrocities? What is imprinted on our collective imagination in the aftermath of World War II? It is not starvation as a crime. It is genocide, the Holocaust, the extermination of, of, of the Jewish people as a crime. And now this seems something very, very different. And I think the reason why um, the, the victorious allies in the aftermath of World War II did not make the prosecution of starvation the centerpiece of their moral condemnation of what had happened was that the Allies had used it themselves. So the British in, 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 in Greece and in Bengal in India were complicit in the creation of famine. And in the last year of the war, the US operation, the military operation against Japan had a component that they candidly called Operation Starvation to, 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 to um, encircle and blockade the Japanese mainland and starve it into submission, which of course never came to fruition. The war was ended more quickly. So the, the, the Atlantic powers, Britain and France, and also in, in to a large extent, um, the United States, were complicit throughout the, 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 the decades in themselves using starvation. And so they didn't want to prohibit it as such. And what this has meant is that there's been a sort of collective effort uh, in Europe and, and, and North America to regard starvation as a natural disaster. And so the image that springs to mind, you know, if you were to do a Google search for starvation, for famine, you get a picture that comes up, which is of usually African children in a dry landscape. You think, OK, this is drought causing an agrarian society dependent on harvest to you know, food supplies to fail and people to go hungry overlooking the historical reality that starvation is actually an act of war an act of imperial policy or indeed an act of of, of totalitarian policy because the communists did it too stalin most notoriously in Ukraine in the 1930s, inflicted a genocidal famine known as the Holodomor. And Mao did similar and things and, and, and Pol Pot in Cambodia too. So across the political spectrum, it has been an instrument. And the idea that, but nonetheless, the idea is prevalent in popular discourse that famine is, 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 is some sort of natural disaster. Thank you for placing that in such um, historical context. And, you know, even though I have have read and written about this, just the explicit use of starvation as a weapon of war, it was not even hidden, you know, to call something Operation Starvation, that the that is really shocking. Um, mm -hmm. And I think this is yet another example that you've demonstrated of how many of the lessons that we have 
been told we have learned after that period, World War One, World War II, um, we're actually just seeing different but manifestations with similar uh, outcomes. Um, I want to shift then to the situation in Gaza as it relates to food, of course. Um, so the uh, prominent physician Ghassan Abu Sitta, who was in the Gaza Strip for the first month and a half of this current military campaign, has argued that um, bombardment, of course, spread of infectious disease and starvation are the main weapons being used in this war. Um, the World Food Program, I believe, just yesterday released a report that found that one in six children under two years of age are acutely malnourished. Um, some significant number of the population is facing catastrophic food conditions. Can you tell us uh, about the situation regarding hunger and famine in Gaza? So let me explain how the, the, the current internationally accepted food insecurity classification system works. Please. And this was adopted about 20 years ago by humanitarian agencies. And the reason why they adopted it was there was a great deal of subjective assessment of what constitutes a food emergency or a famine. And, and, and therefore, no standard or standardized criteria for how assistance should be allocated. And this was causing all sorts of difficulties and tensions. So something was, was drawn up, which is called the Integrated Food Security Phase Classification System, which is a bit of a mouthful, and it's known as the IPC for short. But it's actually very simple and easy to, to visualize because it's a color-coded um, scheme. So you have a map of, of, of an area that is affected in one way or another by a food crisis. And there's five colors. There's green, which is phase one, which is things are more or less okay. There's yellow, which is things are a bit stressed. This is where you need to begin to pay attention to the fact that people may be beginning to go hungry, or if they are villagers, farmers, maybe be adapting the way they ration their food, organize their livestock and their crop and their crops, et cetera, anticipating there may be hunger down the road. Uh, level three, which is which is brown or orange, is crisis. And this is where humanitarian agencies want to begin to respond uh, because people will be going hungry. They will be beginning to migrate. They will be selling essential things they will need for survival in the future. Um, level four, which is colored red, is emergency. And this is where you begin to see children dying in larger numbers. Severe acute malnutrition will be spreading. There will be a risk of outbreaks of infectious disease. And if people are, are moving and are leaving their houses, they will be exposed to the elements. They may you know, um, suffer from you know, exposure to wind, rain, cold, etc. And level five, which is colored dark blood red, is either catastrophe or famine. And it's catastrophe when one of three indicators reaches a particular threshold. And the three indicators are either a household having access to food, um, malnutrition among children reaching a certain level, or deaths, again, particularly among children, reaching a certain threshold. When all three of those hit that catastrophic level, then we're in famine. And things have to be desperately bad for that. Now, in, in Gaza, 
prior to this conflict, back in September or October, Gaza was in normal to stressed. The situation was not good because of the, the siege, but nonetheless was not in a food emergency comparable to situations that we've seen in, say, Afghanistan or Ethiopia or, 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 or um, Sudan in, in recent years. Within a couple of months, the entirety of Gaza was in crisis, emergency or, or catastrophe, uh, an almost unprecedented speed of deterioration. So during, uh, as you will recall, at the end of November, there was a one week truce um, in which uh, some hostages were, um, were freed and so on. And during that pause, it was possible for data to be gathered by humanitarian agencies, the UN especially, which allowed for an assessment to be made. And something called the, the Famine Review Committee, which is a, a, a group of international uh, technical experts got together, they were, they, they were called together to examine these data. And this is like the sort of the, the Supreme Court of Humanitarian Assessment. These are people who will not speak to the press, they are rigorously impartial. They will issue an opinion, a judgment, but they won't. But they, it, it is, but they are extremely discreet, extremely um, impartial, etc. And their assessment was that at that time, one sixth of the population of Gaza was in catastrophe, and a further forty percent was in emergency. So that is. Uh, an extraordinarily severe emergency um, unfolding. And their expectation was that if nothing were done to halt this, by early February, there was a high likelihood that the entire population virtually would be in emergency with more than a quarter in catastrophe or possibly famine. So that's a, that was a, a very clear um warning and what and this has several implications the first one being that whatever was the intent of the military operations that the israel was conducting during the the months up to december when the assessment was conducted now they had clear evidence and an authoritative warning that unless they changed course they would be causing mass death through starvation or through uh, the outbreaks of communicable diseases to do with the breakdown of water supplies and, and so on. So while at, at any point the, the IDF may say, oh, we did not intend to, let us say, you know, bomb this hospital or destroy this piece of infrastructure, we were intending to do something else, and it was collateral damage. The moment that warning was issued, there was, under no circumstances, could Israel continue with its military posture and activities and say, oh, we didn't intend to cause mass death through starvation and infectious disease because they had been authoritatively informed that their actions were going to cause this. And therefore, from that point onwards, anything they did that did not stop that humanitarian emergency was an action that actually contributed to it.
And this is the big difference between starvation crimes and 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 and, and other um, war crimes, which is that uh, um, the, the the issue of intent um, has its burden shifted, so that it, so that fro that you have to intend not to cause a humanitarian emergency at that point in order not to be culpable. Now, it's interesting when the, the um, South Africa brought its, its um, case on the grounds of genocide to the International Court of Justice. And at the end of January, when, when the court heard that, the case hinged very much on the provision, Article 2C of the Genocide Convention, which was creating conditions of life calculated to destroy a group in whole or in part. Now, those conditions of life are essentially what is defined as mass starvation or, 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 or famine. Those are conditions of life that will destroy in whole or in part a group. And the the way the court issued its 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 interim uh, its provisional instructions its interim measures were that to make it clear that Israel had to desist from undertaking any actions that might bring that about, which included two key elements. One is no longer destroying what is anything indispensable to survive. The war crime of starvation is actually defined as the destruction or deprivation of objects indispensable to survival, which includes not just food, but also water supplies, sanitation, um, shelter, medical supplies, etc. It's broader than the, the, than the conventional idea that starvation is just hunger. So they had to desist from that. They also had to provide, a, as it were, a full spectrum of humanitarian relief. And the Israeli judge appointed by the government of Israel the former Chief Justice, Aharon Barak, voted with the majority in a 16 to 1 vote in favour of the immediate provision of those humanitarian um, supplies. So even Israel's own appointed judge recognised at the end of January that that was an essential activity that needed to be undertaken if Israel were to comply with the order to desist from genocide in the sense of destroying what was necessary to sustain life. That was um, four weeks ago. There is nothing that Israel has done in the intervening four weeks that indicates any serious intention to desist from those actions. On the contrary, what it has been doing is continuing to destroy objects indispensable and even stepping up its obstruction of essential humanitarian relief, including making allegations against UNRWA, which it has, according to UNRWA and according to those who've seen the file, it has not substantiated. So, so UNRWA is being considered guilty until proven innocent. And the United States and a number of other international donors have paused, have suspended their funding to UNRWA as a result of these as yet unsubstantiated allegations. And so um, it is very hard to, 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 to escape the conclusion that actually Israel does intend to, to make 
it impossible to to sustain life in 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 Gaza. That is a, a very powerful telling. Um, and I, I mean, for, for myself as someone who's whose focus is quite context specific, and obviously I focus a lot on on Israel Palestine. Much of what you have said and what we have witnessed to non-experts seems unprecedented. And I believe you used that word. Um, but you also reference famine conditions and situations in Afghanistan, Sudan. We've, we saw this famously in Yemen. It seems to me, again, from the outside, that there are distinguishing factors here. We had so many warnings you have the same country who is who's bombing the territory, also controlling the aid, including food that enters the territory. We have this case before the ICJ in which Israel was kind of, you know, given these provisional measures to, to prevent uh, further catastrophe, which, as you as you know, none of which were implemented. Um, were, you know, this seems. I don't know, especially in this shorter scope of time, just five months, truly unique. I'm wondering, can, you know, based on your experience and expertise and looking at this, this topic of starvation and famine more globally, how is this similar or different to these other contexts, both in the actions of the perpetrator, but also in the response of the international community or lack of? It's a very good question because, um, Obviously, a, a situation like like this does invite comparisons, and the most obvious comparison actually is with Syria, with the way the Assad regime had a strategy that it called "kneel or starve," surrender or starve, which was inflicted on a, a number of Syrian cities, including a, a, a in fact a Palestinian. Uh, refugee camp in 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 Syria um and that included a combination of encirclement and siege um uh targeted attacks cutting off electricity and and, and water aerial bombardment not letting people leave etc um and the uh it, it, and in many ways the outcome in Syria was what was comparable. But the speed of uh, deterioration and the intensity of destruction in Gaza does appear to have surpassed even those Syrian cases. If we look further afield and we look at other um, war-related issues, uh, cases of, of mass starvation, usually in the context of, of counterinsurgency or, or, or encirclement. The most obvious parallel that arises is that the recent Ethiopian government war on Tigray region in the north of Ethiopia over two years from um, um, November 2020 to November 2022, which was also an extraordinarily tight siege. And when the, the uh, occupying forces were uh, in Tigray, and also an extraordinarily comprehensive destruction of everything that was necessary to support human survival. The difference in that case being that the, the area was much, much bigger. 
the population was 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 also several times larger and the speed of deterioration although you know deeply disturbing was was much slower and that's actually what is characteristic of most most famines in 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 um in history and in in the modern era in that they 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 cover large populations um often you know agrarian rural populations and they unfold over many months sometimes um several years what we see in the case of gaza is a much more constant geographically concentrated and much more accelerated uh, deterioration in terms of the the international response um the the response to 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 starvation crimes over um, recent years has always had a double standard it's always been the case that the united states and western countries will condemn some cases and not others so they uh, the, the, they went out of their way to condemn the actions of, of uh, Bashar al-Assad and his regime in Syria, while giving something of a pass to Saudi Arabia and the UAE in Yemen. Um, because Ethiopia was seen as a strategic country that, 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 that wanted to be in the US good books, Ethiopia was given something of a pass as well in the way that, say, the, the, the Sudanese and South Sudanese were not. But, it, it, but, I, but I think the, 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 um, the, the case of Israel and Gaza is particularly striking because even in other cases um, where the, um, the US and the West in general has been aligned with those perpetrating starvation crimes, they have demanded, not haven't always got, but they've demanded humanitarian ceasefires. They've demanded humanitarian access and, 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 and have really pressed for, for even limited measures to assist people. In the, in, it is quite extraordinary how in the case of um, Israel's war on 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 gaza this has not happened there has been um almost no discernible political pressure for really tangible um uh, breaks in israel's offensive or the let up in 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 the humanitarian block. you know as much as i kind of feel like I informally understood that to hear you put it in this context of not just comparing it to some of the worst occurrences of, of siege and purposeful starvation, but also the lack of response by the international community, um, despite so many, as you noted, reports and committees whose entire purpose is to point to these very types of crimes and situations. It's very um, sobering. I want to now turn to. Um, I, I want to actually just yes, add please. one point on this. I mean, one of the, one of the principles that has been adopted by um, there are a number of UN Security Council resolutions. Let me start again. Um, in the last few years, the UN Security Council has adopted a number of resolutions. 
um, which are relevant to, to the situation in Gaza. There's a resolution prohibiting attacks on medical facilities, which has been clearly violated. There's a resolution on armed conflict and hunger resolution 2417 that says that it is oblig the obligatory on the UN Security Council to, to, to debate and take action in a case in which armed conflict threatens to cause widespread food insecurity. They're supposed to do that swiftly. That has not happened. And then there's a, a, another resolution, which is known generically in the humanitarian world as the humanitarian carve-out. And this is in the case where a, an organization is designated as being a terrorist organization or a supporter of terrorism. And obviously it is not desirable and is not wanted, especially by the US and Western countries, for any support to go to such an organization. But there's also a recognition that they may be administering a, a population that is in need of humanitarian assistance. So back in 2011 in Somalia, there was a famine and many of the people affected by the famine were in areas controlled by the jihadist group Al-Shabaab. And the, the US Patriot Act prohibited humanitarian agencies from operating in that area in case they gave any support, deliberately or, or inadvertently, material or non-material to Al-Shabaab. And because that, that prohibition contributed to a famine that killed many tens of thousands of people, a, this, a humanitarian carve-out, a workaround was found to say, let us um, have, a, have an approach which we call no regrets programming, which is that even if some assistance may end up in the hands of some of those people whom we don't like because they're associated with terrorists, we nonetheless need to go and do it. And Security Council Resolution 2664, proposed by the United States and Ireland just a couple of years ago, formalized that as law. That applies in Gaza. It is being outrageously violated with the suspension of assistance to UNRWA. So this is the perfect segue then to my next uh, kind of question or series of questions. I mean, you you referenced UN resolutions, you referenced um, both formal and unofficial types of statements and, and reports and all these things about this. But I think many people um, since the events of October 7th and what has unfolded since are starting to question the the applicability and the interpretation of international law because it does seem to matter very greatly on who the perpetrator the supposed perpetrator and the victims are as to how and whether uh international human rights law humanitarian law is applied or even considered can you kind of stepping back from that critique first tell us with regards to famine, because as you know, intent uh, is less important, it sounds to me, than outcome. What does international law tell us about the legal culpability for famine? Um, and if you could address not just Israel's role, obviously, um, but the role of countries like the United States and the United Kingdom in complicity or in, at the very least enabling 
this famine to happen. And then can you also tell us a little bit about is there legal culpability for Palestinian governance bodies in the case of Gaza? This would be Hamas. So there is no legal definition of, of famine. It's, it is not a, a legal category. That may change. It may change if a, um, a decision by the ICJ makes reference to the findings of the famine relief. Uh, sorry. There is no legal definition of famine. It is not a term in international law. That may change if the International Court of Justice um, makes a ruling or, or issues a, a, an instruction making reference to uh, the Famine Review Committee uh, findings decision on determination on whether a famine has occurred based upon the integrated food security phase classification system. But as of now, famine is not a, a, a legal term. But there are several bodies of law that, that prohibit actions that can create starvation. Starvation is a, a term of law. It is a prohibited act. It was prohibited in the Geneva Convention's additional protocols in 1977. Um, it was prohibited as a war crime in the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court, um, which came into effect in 2002. Um, and it's defined as, as depriving a civilian population of objects indispensable to their survival. And this can be either with the intent of causing them to starve, or some lawyers disagree, but it has, but I think it would be very hard to sustain any other reading. Um, the oblique intent, which is that for whatever reason you are committing these acts, whether it's to cause people to move or to, to, to flush out an enemy, if it has that effect, it is also prohibited. And I would add to that that if there is a warning that such an outcome is very probable in the normal course of events. If a, a, a belligerent undertakes that act, then, um, then clearly there must be at least that oblique intent. There's the crime against humanity of extermination, which is um, creating conditions under which uh, human beings cannot survive. And the uh, provision in the Geneva Convention to the same, which has the same essential crime, but with a different intent, simply the, in this case, the intent being to destroy a group in whole or in part. So that those are the provisions of, 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 of uh, international law. And um, I clearly the, um, uh, the the actions of the of of Israel appear to be in violation of the Geneva Conventions, uh, the, the the Rome Statute, and most likely the prohibitions on on um, the crime of extermination. The question of genocide hinges on intent, and that is extraordinarily difficult and complex um, to prove in court. Although there's no doubt that some senior Israelis have, have made very public incitements to genocide. Uh, and, and I don't think anyone uh, could dispute that. In fact, Judge Aharon Barak indeed voted um, 
to uh, voted that Israel should not uh, issue incitements to genocide, um, clearly indicating that um, some some senior government officials were uh, were doing precisely that. Now, um, Hamas has responsibilities too, and uh, ha Hamas's responsibilities include um, uh, the, the taking hostages is 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 is, is a crime. Um, uh, having using human shields is also prohibited. That said. The fact that Hamas is present among a civilian population does not remove the civilian nature of that population. It is still prohibited on the Israeli part to, to have, use disproportionate force against that population. Um, and Hamas has, has an obligation also to permit and facilitate and uh, uh, humanitarian assistance. Uh, I don't think Hamas could be uh, uh, accused credibly of uh, trying to destroy objects indispensable to the survival of the population, either in 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 Gaza or 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 in Israel, for that for that matter. There's a the question of of um, international culpability um, or complicity. This could arise in, in one of several ways. One would be if Israel were indeed to be uh, found to be responsible for, for acts of genocide, um, then there is a prohibition on uh, complicity in, in those crimes. And if the US, the UK, Germany, um, other countries that are um, giving uh, material assistance, um, diplomatic cover to Israel, were not, were to have continued to arm, provide arms and, and provide diplomatic cover and not stop those acts from being committed, they would be liable. It's also the case that um, the International Criminal Court has jurisdiction over uh, crimes uh, committed within Palestine and by Palestinians. So uh, crimes committed by Hamas when they cross the border into Israel come under the jurisdiction of the ICC. And any crimes committed by Israel within the Palestinian territories, as well as crimes committed by Hamas in those territories, come under ICC jurisdiction. And, um, it, and, and, and the uh, countries, especially those that are states parties to the Rome Statute of the ICC, like, like the UK and Germany, might begin to worry if uh, the, the ICC prosecutor begins to bring charges against um, Israeli individuals for, for, for war crimes or crimes against humanity, that they might. Um, it would be very hard to see how they could be uh, help could be implicated at the ICC itself, but under their domestic uh, uh, um, rules, they uh, they might be exposed. So it sounds like much depends on kind of how these these multiple court cases um, proceed in the next weeks, months, perhaps years as to how these 
interpretations of law may come into play in this specific context. But it's it can be a bit frustrating when there are these mechanisms that exist purportedly to prevent active life-threatening emergencies, and yet they seem so slow as to be, I mean, you know, starvation is happening. So while we're quibbling about these kinds of large questions and what will the ICJ do and the ICC do, um, on the ground, it's it seems to be making no tangible impact. Is this a tension that you have run across in this work previously? Are there efforts to kind of make sure that emergency measures can be taken in a time-sensitive manner, especially as it relates to starvation? You put your finger on it. I mean, this is this is a key thing. We can't expect any of these courts to come to any sort of decision, any sort of verdict in months, probably not in years. And 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 that and that's simply too late. So I mean, if we look at the the ICC cases in in in, in Sudan, for example, the crimes were committed back in 2004, 2005. The arrest warrants were issued in 2007. The first uh, uh, suspect was apprehended in 2020. The court case opened in 2022, and it is still ongoing. And we cannot you know, wait that long. I mean, it's tremendous that that process of accountability is happening, but something much, much more expeditious is required. And that's why... The UN Security Council really ought to be acting on this. But clearly, as we've seen repeatedly um, and shockingly, the United States uses its feet. And it is preventing the relevant Security Council uh, resolutions actually being utilized, the generic ones, on armed conflict and hunger, on, on the humanitarian carve-out. And... and in this context, the, the, the action that is needed is immediate and political, and the pressure is political and moral. It is essentially to point out, to make the argument on a, a legal basis that there is a, a, a responsibility here, but above all, on, a, on an ethical, moral, human basis, that action needs to be taken immediately. And if that is disregarded, then then the what the United States and the UK and others like to talk about as the rules-based international order is, is being destroyed by those who call themselves its champions. I mean, perfect timing. The US just vetoed another UN Security Council resolution just this morning. Um, so yeah, it is it is very troubling to see these mechanisms that we've created to prevent atrocity being so cynically um, ignored, abused. I don't even know what the term is. So you said, you know, something needs to happen now, right? People are in catastrophic conditions now. Um, you also noted earlier that there were, of course, food security, food insecurity concerns in Gaza long before this current military campaign. I and many others wrote about them, warned about them. There were many UN reports, UNICEF reports. I could go on and on. We're past the point now of even a ceasefire this very moment. 
ending the trauma and suffering of millions who have no homes to go back to, have lost family members, and with the destruction of agricultural lands, bakeries, uh, stores, you know, food production facilities that will not just take rebuilding, but all this rubble has to be cleared. Roads have to be fixed before food can be distributed accurately or, you know, adequately. It feels to me at this point, I'm wondering what could even stop famine, you know, after even a ceasefire. So obviously step one would need to be a cessation of, of all hostilities. H how could we even begin to intervene um, in, in, in this crisis? And is there something currently now that agencies like the World Food Program could be doing that they are not? Well, first of all, let's, let, let's be clear what type of a massacre a famine is it's a massacre in slow motion and once and it's a massacre with a momentum so that once it begins it doesn't stop immediately if people are being killed by bombs or bullets then when the shooting stops the dying stops if people are dying in a famine once the starving stops, once those actual acts of destruction and deprivation stop, it doesn't stop the dying. Because the, uh, the legacy of hunger takes some time to overcome. And the destruction of health and sanitation and, and shelter, etc., means that um, communicable diseases, etc., will continue to ravage the population. And what we see in countries where you have a war-induced famine is that even when there's a ceasefire, the death rates may begin to peak and come down, but there is a long tail. And when they come down, the society in the post-famine or the post-war situation is still desperately vulnerable, much impoverished. It is not where it was before. And those legacies are multi-dimension so they can range from the, the 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 biological nutritional legacy of children in, including children who are, who are unborn now living their lives without being able to achieve their full potential because they didn't have nutrition at that key developmental stage and this can pass down generations too their studies of the survivors of of, of famines in, in, in Finland, in the Netherlands, where they have very, very good data over the generations that show the impacts, not only in children, but in grandchildren. Mental, physical, developmental. Um, you, you have the fact that um, the it will take many years for those livelihoods to be restored. And you have the fact that the social fabric itself is, is destroyed. Um, and it's remarkable how in countries that have, among people, communities that have suffered famine, it often takes several generations before they're able to talk about it. So if we take the Irish famine that struck in the, 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 the 1840s, it took 
125, 140 years before they could actually build memorials and really talk about it. And the reason for this is that um, undergoing collective starvation is a socially traumatic experience. Imagine you're a mother and you have several children and the resources that you have in your hands allow you to treat only one of your three children or feed only some of them. And you have to make those choices. Imagine that your neighbors or your, your cousins come to your door and begging for food or medicine or something. And you can only have, and you say, actually, this food is for my children. And it's those desperately painful choices that live on in people's hearts and their minds afterwards. And, and that is part of the trauma of a society that gets deeply embedded within um, how people relate to one another and over the generations. And, and the part of the rationale for bringing up the fact that starvation is a crime inflicted on people, it's not, is to make the point, it's not your fault. It is somebody else that did this to you. You shouldn't feel responsible. You shouldn't feel guilt at the 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 painful choices that um, that you made, the situation you, you you found yourself in. In this regard, you know there are obvious parallels with um, survivors of of sexual violence blaming themselves. Similarly, survivors of starvation tend to blame themselves. And so this is so that all these traumas that the the, uh, the people of, of of Gaza will um, will only become aware of in the months, years, even generations ahead, and that is 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 an obligation on the world to to um, provide the wherewithal to 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 restore a sense of human dignity, a sense of community, a sense of future um, to people who, who, who have been through this. And that can't begin soon enough. These things have to begin not only with practical action, obviously the provision of food, medicine, shelter, clean water has to begin today. But the, but the symbolic provision of solidarity, of, of explaining, transmitting that message of shared humanity, of sympathy, of solidarity, of saying, you know, this was done to you. You know, whatever Hamas may have done, we may not like Hamas, we may think they're criminals or whatever. This was not the collective fault of the people of Gaza that this has been inflicted on them. That is as important um, as, as, as any material help. It's really um, sobering to hear. I mean, of course, you know, the, the, the long-term effects of malnutrition and of starvation on our physical bodies is something that I think people can intrinsically understand. But when you bring in this, the trauma of, of, of going through it, um, I just saw a video this morning of a boy um, trying to kind of sweep up the remnants of a of flower that were that a flower uh, not flowers that was dispersed among some dirt so he could bring it home to his mother to just try and make some bread and thinking about the 
the mental health toll of that. And then as you described these kinds of impossible decisions that people are making on a daily basis, especially with regards to their children, um, it really paints a picture that this is, this is such a long-term crisis and um, it, it requires immediate intervention. I want to finish with, with a two-part question. Um, the first is, you know, I, I, there was an article by a UK global health expert maybe a month or two ago at this point, and she predicted that with current trend lines due to starvation and um, infectious disease, an estimated quarter of the population of Gaza could be killed or die within the next year. Um, this would be half a million people. Uh, this was based on previous studies of health outcomes in displaced populations and similar conditions. What are your, um, what do you see coming? What are, what are your fears? What do you predict will happen? And conversely, in a, in a parallel universe, what would you like to see happening in the coming weeks and months? So on your first question, it's extraordinarily hard to predict to foresee what outcomes will be in terms of starvation, communicable diseases, etc. Um, the deaths of a quarter of the population would be an extraordinarily high number. Um, and, um, and, and I would put that really at the, the upper limit of, 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 of what is conceivable. I think it would be fair to say that everything being equal, we would expect the, the, the death toll from hunger and disease to surpass the death toll from violence. That I think would be, would be a fair and reasonable and cautious uh, prognostication. And that's obviously terrible. Um, in terms of, of what needs to happen next, I think the, um, the most obvious and immediate step is for the recommendations made by the Famine Review Committee in December, which were for an immediate cessation of hostilities and a full spectrum of relief operations to be implemented. Um, and that ought, I think, to be the uh, urgent imperative order that comes out from the International Court of Justice um, at the end of this week when it receives Israel's report on what it has, and most importantly, what it has not done in, in response to the the uh, orders uh, issued uh, for uh, four weeks ago, and and I think it's um, if 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 nothing is done on that regard, then the uh, the worst fears about you know humanitarian catastrophe and the the uh, the the most extreme allegations of responsibility of uh, Israel for those outcomes 
steps will will come to pass. On that note, uh, thank you so much, Professor Duval, for sharing your time and expertise today with us, but also so widely um, in the past weeks and months. And I look forward to following your analysis in the coming weeks and months. And thank you to our listeners for tuning into this episode of Occupied Thoughts. Please make sure to check out the FMEP website, uh, www.fmep.org for resources related to this podcast and other great content related to Palestine and Israel. Uh, please make sure you are subscribed to this podcast to stay up to date. Uh, you can also find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify. And you can watch video versions of many of our podcasts on YouTube. With that, I am Yara Asi signing off until the next episode of Occupied Thoughts. Mm -hmm.